Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. This morning we will be reading verses 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32. This is probably the most well-known parable that Jesus ever gave. The most well-known story that he ever gave. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And if that's a confusing word, prodigal, you can just use the word wasteful. That's what prodigal means. The story of the wasteful son. That's the idea here. We're going to read the story in its fullness. Now, it's quite long as far as the parables of Jesus go, but we'll go ahead and read all of the verses together now at the beginning of the sermon right off the bat. So let's read now Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Just a quick note, he couldn't couldn't eat what the pigs ate, that's the idea. They, They ate food that was indigestible. He would have taken it, but he couldn't, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. 
I never transgressed your commandment at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who's devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Now you would expect that a story like this, which everybody seems to know, would be simple to understand. And to be honest with you, I think it is simple to understand, but it's surprising to me how many people fail to understand the point that Jesus is making here. So let me try and be clear at the risk of ruining it from the beginning here, at spoiling the end. Let's try to be clear about what the point of all this is. The point of this story is that salvation is a joyful thing to God. It is a joyful thing to God. Doesn't sound very profound to say that, does it? It's joyful to God. It should be joyful to us. Salvation is a happy thing. It's something to celebrate. It's something to to clap about, to sing about, to smile about, to have a party over. When we think of the things in life that we celebrate, salvation should be chief among them because to God, it is. It is a happy, joyful thing. It's better than someone's birthday. It's better than a holiday. It's better than a big family get-together. It's better than winning the lottery. It's better than falling into some great inheritance. Whatever you want to compare it to that might raise you out of your seat, which for some of you would probably take an awful lot. Some of you just don't don't celebrate. It doesn't seem like very much. Whatever would get you out of your seat, to God, salvation is more than that. It's more than that. Now, the reason the parable is misunderstood is because there are a lot of other lessons that you could learn from a story like this. Okay, so there's a lot of of weeds that you could get caught up in if you're trying to work through this. And I want to give a few of them to you this morning as some examples. We might say that there's a lesson here about respecting our parents, okay? And, and, And there probably is something you could draw from that. Clearly, there's a younger son here, and he doesn't seem to begin the story with very much respect for his father. He doesn't seem to be a very honorable young man. We could talk about the importance of not living a prodigal life or a wasteful life. This son goes off and he makes a total mess of himself. The older brother describes it as harlotry. It's to, I mean, he, he, just does, he, he just goes and, and makes a big waste of all of it. He certainly regrets it, and that's pretty prevalent in the story. We could say that God wants us to be patient with our relationships, which he does. And so he's giving us a story about a very patient father. And it might say something about the patience that we're supposed to exercise in our family relationships, which are often some of the hardest relationships to be patient in. There's certainly something about forgiving others here, reconciling with others here. The father forgives The older brother does not. Speaking of the older brother, we could note how poorly Jesus reflects upon him, calling out his anger and demonstrating his bitterness. And we could say that God does not want us to be angry or bitter because the Bible clearly says that many times over. Like There are multiple passages, multiple places we could go and hear from God concerning those kinds of things. But to make any of these lessons is to miss the main lesson of the story, 
The parable is about the joy of salvation. Now, how can I be sure? Is that just my opinion? Is there something clear in the text to tell me that this is about the joy of salvation? As a matter of fact, there is. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 15, you will see that when Jesus tells us this story, he actually tells it as a response to something that's happening around him. And here's what's happening in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. It says, Then all of the tax collectors and the sinners, so the not-so-good people, all of those people drew near to him to hear him. Um, they didn't just draw near to him for a miracle or two or to see what's going on, but they they drew near to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, it says. Complained. They were not happy that this audience was here. And so this is what they said. This man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Now, we might not think much of that. I've, you know, had... Uh, meals casually with lots of people before. But when someone received someone for a meal in Jesus' day, it was almost as if you were uh, in some kind of a formal relationship with them, some kind of peaceful relationship with them. Eating meals together was a sign of great friendship. And here it's saying that Jesus is receiving these people. And the first thing Jesus says to them after this complaining in verse 3 is he tells them a little story. He says, look, if any of you had a hundred sheep, and you lost one of those sheep, you would certainly go looking for the sheep that you lost. I mean, maybe if you had 10,000 sheep, you'd, you know, just write one off at the bottom of the ledger and move on. But if you had 100, you're not just going to kiss away 1% of your gross property in whatever industry, in the shepherding industry. If you lose one, you're going to go try to find it. And if you do find it, you're going to be pretty excited, Jesus says, that the sheep that you lost... Uh, has returned you, it's been found, the value is restored. And he even says, you probably would have some kind of a celebration of that. Now, you and I probably, you know, we're not, you know, not farmers, not, uh, you know, most of us are not. I'm looking at Joe kind of square in the eyes, or some of you other dabble in this thing, but many times there's been an event, a service, something going on, and I say, where's Joe? And the reply that I get back is that he's chasing a cow somewhere. And I think, well, I've never woke up a single day in my life and thought, it's time to go chase a cow, right? But Joe is a living example of this. And when you finally go and catch it and you bring it back and you restore all the value, you realize you didn't waste all that time and all that money and all that effort, you're, you're probably pretty tired, but you're probably also fairly relieved that it's been returned, that it's been taken care of. And that's what Jesus is saying. You would be happy about that. You would celebrate it, he says, with your neighbors and your friends. And his conclusion in verse 7 is, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 other just persons who need no repentance. In heaven, God rejoices and celebrates when someone who is lost to him in sin, someone who is under judgment, someone who is facing eternal hell, someone who's living a life of no value and will add eternal value, which is the only lasting value before God, there is joy when someone like that is recovered and saved in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. And when Jesus mentions here that heaven is not rejoicing in the same way over quote-unquote just 
persons who need no repentance. He is taking a shot at the Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining in verse 2. Those people who believe that they are good, that's what just means, righteous, that they are good with God and that they in fact do not have any sin that they must repent of. Now, it is not Jesus' point here in this story, in this section, to argue with them about their self-proclaimed righteousness. In other sermons, in fact, he has already made it abundantly clear that he does not think that they are righteous like what they think that they are. Matter of fact, this morning in our Sunday school class, we've been reading from the Sermon on the Mount. And right there in chapter 5, I believe it's verse 20, Jesus tells the whole crowd of people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're going to hell. You will not go to heaven. That's a pretty shocking thing to say. So we know that Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees are already well at odds about this whole thing. So he's not arguing with them here. He's simply saying God rejoices a lot more over sinful people who turn away from their sin than over people who think that they don't have any sin to turn away from. God is joyful in the repentance of sinners much more so than any rejoicing he makes over people who don't think that they need to repent of anything. Okay, so that's the story of the sheep in verse 7. Then in verses 8 through 10, he tells another story. It's very similar. We won't go through it in detail, but it's about a woman who loses a coin, and then she finds it. And in verse 10, he makes the same point in that story too. Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, same same point, different story. And from there, he immediately goes into this story of the prodigal son. Ending this story with the father's joy over his young son's repentance. And then the father corrects his older son, telling him, you should be joyful too. You should be joyful too. Verse 32 It was right that we should make merry and be glad, it says, for your brother was dead and is alive again. So the connections that Jesus is making here are rather obvious. First, we have the call to rejoice because the sheep was lost and now it's found. Then we have the call to rejoice because the coin was lost and now it's found. And finally, we have the call to be merry, to be glad because your brother was lost and now he's found. And you can see the connection in all of the language, can you not? This is not a parable about dealing with wayward children or a parable about forgiving people or about honoring your parents. It's not about those things. This is a parable about how happy God is when sinners repent. That means they turn away from their sin. They acknowledge their failure and they turn away from their sin and they turn toward Him. And in each of these parables, what do we find? We find the call to be happy with God. With God. Be happy with the one who found the sheep. Be happy with the one who found the coin. Be happy with the Father who has found His Son. And in these parables, the one who has lost all of these things is representative of God. We are to be happy with Him. Now, if that's what the parable means, and if we've looked at it the right way, we've seen it in the right context, 
then there is a better question than what's the point of the parable that we should ask. We begin by asking, what's the point here? Now we should ask, why is God making this point? Why? Why is it so important to God that we should know how happy He is when a sinner repents? Well, I want you to consider this passage here. This is from John 17. Just two verses from John 17. I want you to think about this for a second. In verse 3 of John 17, Jesus is speaking to God. He's praying. And He's speaking about His disciples. He's praying for them. And this is what He prays. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. He refers to Himself in the third person in His prayer. He acknowledges His special place as Messiah among God's plan of salvation. This is eternal life. Remember, it's the same Jesus who stood in front of the crowd and told everyone that unless your righteousness is better than the most righteous people in our society, you're going to go to hell when you die. It's the same Jesus. And now he says, here's eternal life, that they may know you. We are supposed to know God, to know Him. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. See, that's their chief problem. They don't know God. But I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. These might know you through me. That's what he's saying here. God wants us to know Him in the Bible. We're not just reading information that will be helpful to us. Okay? That's not what this is. We're not just reading ancient stories. When we open the Word of God, we are meant to discover God. We are meant to encounter Him. We are meant to know Him as He is. The reason why Jesus is sometimes called the Word of God is because in the person of Jesus, God, in all of His fullness, is revealed. You think about that. Have you ever looked at someone and you wondered, what are they thinking? Have you ever looked at someone and you've tried to make your best guess at what's going on? Um, and, and you just, you can't puzzle it out. Or maybe you think you have only to find out that you didn't. The only way that you and I can actually be known, fully known, really understood, is if we put who we are, who we really are, not who we are on the outside, but who we really are into words, into communication, into some kind of thing that reveals who we are. I might think I know why my wife is upset with me. I think I've gotten pretty good at that over the years. And I've usually done something stupid enough that it's fairly obvious, but I don't know for sure until, until we talk about it. And I don't know the way forward until we talk about it. I, we, we reveal ourselves through words. I've had any number of people say, hey, you look tired today. Is everything okay? Or, hey, you don't seem yourself. Is everything fine? And I can simply nod and say, yeah, I'm not doing so well or whatever. But no one's going to know me unless I explain who I am. And that requires language. That requires word. That requires vocabulary. This is not a waste. This is not a waste. This is who God is. This is how God thinks. This is how God 
acts, this is not a waste. These words are important. And so the reason why Jesus is called the Word of God, because in Jesus, God is revealed in flesh and blood. It's pretty profound, really. So when we ask the question, why is Jesus making this point about God's happiness when sinners repent? The answer is because God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know Him. This is actually a huge disagreement between Jesus and the religious leaders of His day and age. See, the religious leaders claim to know God, and Jesus claims to know God, but it becomes pretty evident right away that they are not speaking of the same, the same being. And it divulges into insults rather fast, whereas we find the religious leaders of the day saying, tell us the truth, aren't you from a demon? Isn't your father the devil? Right? You don't come from God because they know this is not the God that we're talking about here. And then you get to the Gospel of John and Jesus is practically saying the same thing. You're from your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and there's no truth found in him. So it's very clear that while we're using the same language here, these two people are at odds about who God is. If there's anything that Jesus and the religious leaders agreed upon, it's the fact that they did not agree at all about who God was. The chief point of disagreement. Listen to this interaction. This is Matthew 15, just a couple of verses here. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? <laughs> you ever had somebody tell you that? And you know, we're all pretty decent people. We're pro you know, we have one of two reactions. Like uh, the first reaction is like, oh, I didn't mean that or whatever. You know what? That's not how I, I didn't mean. Or it's like, well, I don't care if they're offended. You know, it doesn't matter to me. You know, those are our reactions. You know, the, but it's, this is the disciples coming to Jesus. Don't you know that they got really offended by what you said? And here's Jesus in verse 14. Yeah, you can leave those guys alone. Um, they are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind people lead blind people, then everybody's going to fall into a ditch. They're, they don't, don't follow. Those guys are not going to take you to God. Don't follow those guys. You don't, you don't need to mess with them. The God is not found down that road. They're telling you, come to us. We can take you to God. We, know, we can teach you about God. We, you can know God. And Jesus says, no, no. Follow me, I'll, I'll show you what God is like. I'll show you what God is like. And here is a story about who God is. First, God is like a father. He's not like a man who lost a sheep or a woman who lost a coin. He's like a father. Because however valuable a sheep is and however valuable a coin is, surely a child is worth far more. Surely a child is worth far more. So God says, look, I know what you do when you lose something of value to you. But when he describes himself, he puts himself into the story and he becomes a father and a child, not some woman looking for a coin or some man looking for an animal. And if you want to understand who God is and how he sees us, then he's telling us in the story who he is and how he sees us. He's not the disconnected deity that some people imagine him to be. He's not the disinterested person who, if we do something big enough or great enough, we might capture his attention for a few moments. That's not who he is. We're tempted to think of God that way, oftentimes because of our own disinterest in him. 
or our own disinterest in others. I see people write things on Facebook or social media or saying casual conversation all the time. I've had enough of this person. I'm done with this person. I don't want to talk about these people and their problems. That's how we are all the time. And so it's only natural for us to assume that everybody else is just like us and that God is like us. And that God has just written us off and he pays no attention and doesn't mind because we do that with people all the time. I've had enough of that person's nonsense. I've had enough of this. I've had enough of that. That's not who God is. God is like a father. And second thing the parable shows us, we are like children, like this man's son. Now, the Pharisees are behaving like his older son. So let's not do that. Let's just, let's just put that out of the way right at the beginning. Let's not stand before God pretending that we've never done anything wrong and upset that we are not getting more from God than what we are. If that's the position that you're in today, you are hopelessly lost. You do not understand your father. You don't understand yourself. You don't understand your sin. You need to dive into the Sermon on the Mount and you need to see that the man who cheats on his wife is no more guilty than the man who looks after a man or a woman with lust in his heart. You need to go to the Sermon on the Mount. You need to see, yeah, the guy who murders someone is very bad, but he's no worse off in the eyes of God than the person who simply gets angry with his brother without a cause or leaves things unreconciled uh, between his brother rather than leaving his gift at the altar and going and making things right or throws an insult around like, how many of us have said this week, that guy's an idiot? You said something like that this week? That person's a moron. They're dumb. They don't know what they're talking about. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus condemns people for no more than that. So let's not put ourselves in the position of the Pharisee. Let's relate ourselves properly now to the younger son. And in the story, the younger son chooses that he is going to live his life as if his father is dead. As if his father's dead. Now, that may not be obvious in the text, but let's point it out. In verse 12, if you, if you look at the text with me, the younger son says, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. That could be a little confusing in the English, I understand. What is he asking for? Well, the portion of the goods that would fall to him from his father is his inheritance. It's his inheritance. And when does someone get an inheritance? When their father dies. And when the father dies, a portion of all of his possessions would go to the older son and a portion of all of his possessions would go to the younger son because he only has the two. And here the younger son is saying, I don't want to wait for you to die. I would like for you to give me the value of all that I would get from you if you died today. Because his value might go up or down, right? I mean, the man could live for 20 more years or 30 more years. He could be worth far more, but the younger son is not interested in that. No, Dad, imagine that you had died this morning. How much would I get if you died today? Actually, if you want to get a sense of the insult, when verse 12 says, so he divided to them his livelihood, the word livelihood is the Greek word bios, which simply means life. His life. In a sense, the younger son is saying, give me my portion of your life. The portion that I would get from you when you die. And then the young man takes his part of his father's life that's passed to him, and he goes out, and he leaves, and he goes far away from his father, far away from his counsel, far away from his business, 
far away from his interests, and he does not concern himself at all with the fact that he is the son of another man, and he lives as if his father is dead to him. This is a picture of our lives. This is how God sees our lives before trusting Jesus for salvation, before repentance. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted Jesus for salvation, and you have not repented, you've not turned away from your sin, this is a picture of your rejection of God from His perspective. Surely not your perspective. I understand. But here we're meant to know God and what He sees. And this is how He describes it. God has made you. He's given you life. You've taken the life that He's given you and you've lived it as if God were dead to you. You've squandered it. You've wasted it. It's been wasted in sin, in pleasure, on your own devices. This is how God perceives you. This is how you really are. Okay? Yet despite this wasteful living, despite this rejection of God our Father, we discover, shockingly so, that God has not forgotten us. He's not moved on. He's not turned his back as the older brother has here. I'll not be hurt by that guy anymore. I'll not be hurt by that woman anymore. I'll turn my back. I'll turn my eye. I'll move on with my business. Instead, to our amazement, we discover God's description of himself as loving the sinful man and woman. In the story, the father is pictured in verse 20 as watching for his son and upon seeing his son, running to his son, literally falling down on his neck is the language, kissing his face. He is fast to clothe him with a fine robe, to adorn him with his family's ring. There is a restoration in the giving of the ring here that goes beyond what we recognize in our culture. It's not just, I'm glad to have you back. It's, I'm glad to have you back as my son. That's what the ring was. This was what allowed him to do business. This is what allowed him to have a place. This is what made him more than a servant. But my favorite part of it is that he rushes to put sandals on his feet because that's the kind of thing that a parent would do. Right? If you were telling the story, we might make a big deal about the robe or the hugs or the kisses or the I love you's or the rings, but it's very practical. It tugs at my heart. It's meant to tug at my heart. It can be the only reason why Jesus has included it, that upon falling on his son and kissing his son and embracing his son and loving his son, he looks down and he sees the broken, calloused, filthy, painful feet of his son, and he sends someone off rushing to go find a pair of sandals because he has no intention that his son will take one more step without being relieved. It's not emotional manipulation, okay? Jesus is telling us the details of the story for a reason. This is how God sees us. This is how God longs for us. This is the restoration God desires from us. No detail is missed 
in Jesus' story of the Father's unceasing love for His wayward child. And in all of this, Jesus is showing us how God loves us. So we are to know that it is in God's character to forgive everything that we have done wrong. Everything. Everything that we have done wrong. King David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man. You know, blessed means blessed by God. It's meant to be a, a statement of joy. Happy, it could be literally translated. It's a statement of joy. David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. He prays in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In Psalm 103, David sings, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from him. And then David says this, and this is where it's applicable to us this morning. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. If this story is a part of God's design that we should know Him, then we should see in this story. We have to see in this story. We're meant to see in this story a father who is ready to forgive everything that his child has done. Everything. There is no repayment. There is no payback plan. There's no first go talk to your mother or first go do this or go make things right with your brother or let's sit down and get a detailed description of everything that you've been doing for the last few years, son. How did you come to lose such a sum of money? Why were you living this way? Didn't I raise you better than this? It's none of that. Because that's not what forgiveness is. And when we see the joy that Jesus is describing at the return of the Son, God is showing us how much we mean to Him. See, when you find something that you've lost, the way that you celebrate the recovery of that thing is related to how much you loved that thing in the first place, right? That's pretty common, right? You lose a sheep and you find it, you're probably going to take your, you know, your wife and your family out to dinner. You, you lose a coin that's worth a day's pay. That's the coin in the text. It's, it's a denarius. We didn't go into all the details. But you lose a coin that's worth a paycheck, and then all of a sudden you find it. You're probably going to have your neighbors over, your friends over for dinner or something. Like, you're going you're gonna to celebrate that, right? But when you lose a son... When your son who is dead to you comes home, you blow everything to celebrate. Because what the heck is all the other stuff for if not to celebrate something like this? I mean, what's the point of say, What's the point of having a fatted calf if you're not going to kill it right now? What's the point of, of having riches if you're not going to enjoy, if you're not going to celebrate stuff like this? What is a fancy robe? What is a signet ring? What is the cost of a huge party compared to a son? There is no comparison. The Pharisees knew that God would accept the repentant tax collector. They knew that. They knew that. They taught that. They taught that God would accept 
the repentant sinner. That's not why Jesus is giving us this parable. Jesus is not giving us this parable to say, God will accept you. As if to say, well, okay, I guess I will let that person into heaven too. God looks at sinners who repent and he throws all the blessings of his kingdom upon them. He falls on them with kisses. He showers them with the joy of heaven. And in heaven, there is a party. There is a celebration. And it almost seems unbelievable to think of, doesn't it? Because who are we in comparison of that? Surely, when someone, surely, if someone comes today to the front of this room and prays, uh, trusting Jesus Christ today at the end of this service, surely the most attention that that person could possibly merit when we are thinking literally of heaven where there are angels, etc. Surely the most is, hey, uh, mark this box next to so-and-so's name. Okay? We don't want to forget what happened today. That's got to be about it. Right? But that's not what Jesus says. Because that's how you and I you and I think of it, sadly. That's why David is reminding his soul in the psalm that we read at the start of the service to be happy about these things because we are mere men and we are distracted by other things and frankly, we might be more happy about the coin or the sheep than the sinner who repents, but that's not how God sees it. To God, a child has returned to his father. And brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came to the world in the first place. He came for us, for lousy, stinking sinners who were wasting their lives on stupid, temporary things. But now, now we know how God has felt about us. To God, we are children lost in need of finding, dead in need of living, perishing in need of saving. And let me tell you where this goes. One day, not long after this, in Luke 19, Jesus finds himself passing through a city called Jericho. And he's, he's within seven to ten days of dying, to put it in perspective. He's going up to Jerusalem. And as he goes through Jericho, he's walking by. There is, of all things, a little man up in a tree. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that before. I've seen kids clowning around in trees. I've seen people up messing around doing important things. I have never been walking down the road and all of a sudden there is a little man sitting up in a tree. I've never seen anything like that. But that's what, that's what it says. Zacchaeus was that wee little man. Right? And a wee little man was he. That's right. And he climbed up in that sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. And as the Savior passed him by, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Right? It's a great song. It's better than most of the stuff that I hear you guys listening to. Way better. Taylor Swift doesn't have a better song. Okay? This is a good one. And this guy, Zacchaeus, was not a good guy. He was a prodigal guy. 
He was a prodigal guy. He was one of those guys who was wasting his life. He's described as a chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector, but one of the big ones. He's in Jericho. That's like one of the wealthiest cities. He's the tax collector there. In Luke 19, 7, we discover that when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, guess what? In verse 7 of Luke 19, it says, everybody complained. Just like here. Just like earlier in Luke when Matthew, the tax collector, got saved and we're immediately told, and everybody complained. But you know what happened? This guy, Zacchaeus, the sinner, he stands up in the middle of the dinner and he gave a very simple speech. It's not very long. He said, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone, which he undoubtedly had, by false accusation, I'm going to pay it back four times over. Now, think of this for a moment. Focus on this. As a tax collector, he had enriched himself at the expense of other people. He'd gone around telling them they owe more than they owe. And he'd done this for decades. If you ask, why did he pledge half of his possessions to the poor? I can't imagine how much he had to repay as man after man came up to him after this and said, do you remember when you told me I owed this? Do you remember when you told me I owed this? Do you remember when you told me I owed this? To all of these people, Zacchaeus is the Romans tax collector. But now he's not the Romans tax collector anymore. He is a son who has come home to his father. And I'm not reading that into the text. That is what it says. Jesus stands up and says, Today, salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus also is a son. Because Zacchaeus also is a son. How does such a thing happen? Jesus explains. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, you've got to have one of two responses to this this morning. If you're a Christian person, and if you know that you're a child of God, and that He is your Father, you need to take what this has reminded us about God, and you need to do what David does in the Psalms. And you need to remind your soul of the joy of your salvation. You need to not be content to be miserable or mundane about what God has done for you. Because it's not right. It's no more right than if your father comes up to you and throws his arm around you. And embraces you and kisses you and bestows blessings all upon you. It's no more right than if your father does that and you shrug him off and walk away like nothing's happened. Now maybe you have a father who's been so unworthy of your affection that that would be totally appropriate. But that's not God. So you have to focus. You have to remind yourself. You have to stir up in yourself a joy of what God has done for you in salvation. And if you go to Thanksgiving this week and you start rattling off the things that you're thankful for, 
I'm happy for my wife. I'm happy for my children. I'm glad to have a job. I'm not starving. Not in Gaza. Not in Israel. I'm, you start listing it all off right now. And you don't settle upon what God has done for you. Then you need to stir up for yourself joy and your salvation. And on the other side. If you do not know God because you've refused to deal with your sin. Here is Jesus come to save you. But you refuse to turn away from it. You've not had the moment that the younger son had. Or he looks at everything that he's done and he's like this is nonsense. It would be far better to be a follower of Jesus. It would be far better to have peace with God. It would be far better to have God's blessings in my life than this. If you've not had that, then you need to look here at who God is in this text. And you need to see a father who is ready to embrace you as his own. Who's ready to put away all of your sin. Who's ready to just throw it as far as the east is from the west, as David says in the Psalms. And if you are lost today, you need to see God for who He is. Not a tyrant ready to throw people into hell. But a Father who has come to seek and to save the lost. And this at great cost to Himself in Christ. So, we move to thanksgiving. We move to what should be a happy holiday. I ask that it will be happy for the right reasons. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your people. I ask that you'll forgive us when we make something ordinary out of something spectacular. Father, I pray that we'll be grateful to you that will honor you with what we say and what we do and that will remind ourselves to be joyful and to be happy and to remember your love for us this year, this week. Help us to celebrate who you are. Help us to surrender our lives to you. Help us to honor you and not waste them. Bring to us the joy of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.